Hello once again, wrestling fans. This is Seth, a.k.a. Zandrax, the mayor of Geekville, and the host of Classic Wrestling Memories. Boy, we got to dust off the cobwebs here in the studios. I know it's been a while since we've done any shows, and I do want to thank the people that have hung in there, especially not only listening to some of our past episodes, but the community that's brought up on the Facebook. We have a Classic Wrestling Memories Facebook page. We're still getting new fans and followers practically on a daily basis, it seems. So I definitely want to thank everybody that has found us and joined our little community. And we're going to talk arguably one of the greatest, if not the single greatest personality or influence in the history of wrestling. I'm not using those words lightly. We're talking about the late, great Antonio Inoki. And I do have to have it get a disclaimer out of the way. His story is way too big to get into on one episode. So we're going to do the best we can. But returning to the airwaves now from an undisclosed location in South Kakalaki, my friend and usual co-host, Classic Wrestling Memories, Crazy Train Jonathan Bullock. All aboard, ladies and gentlemen. I also want to extend my apologies for having been so long. I think we last time recorded, we told you things that just got nuts. And that in both our lives, professionally and otherwise. Well, the last time we were supposed to do this, tornado there where you are yeah i don't think you can hear the alarms in the episode but i i, I remember hearing them when we were recording and i apologize for my, my raspy horsey voice we've been wanting to do this so long and i am so dedicated i apologize again for my voice and you might hear me chewing because mm-hmm. i am actually not in south Carolina. i am actually in georgia driving mm-hmm. back to south carolina from Emory Hospital in Atlanta, where I think I told our listeners last time they dubbed uh, 20 some odd years in the ring have caught up with me and I didn't have some back work done. I was supposed to be going down there for a surgical consult. It didn't happen. Another story for another episode. But regardless to say, I'm recording while I drive and eating at the same time because we got to get this done. I, <laughs> I'm doing this for you, ladies and gentlemen. Yeah. Wrestling fans, I'm, I'm taking one from the team, but I'm an old wrestler. We're used to stuff like that, so I, I can handle it. Don't worry. Oh, and add all, all that. I worked last night, so I've been up since 4.30 yesterday afternoon, and it is now 12.30 the next day. So it's, yeah. yeah, do, if do I the fall math asleep, there. You'll know because I'm wrecking my car, but anyway. <laughs> so this may be our farewell show is what you're getting <laughs> No, no. I fear if I survive two matches with New Jack and two matches with Abdul the Butcher, I probably am not part of Kill. I'm just <laughs> But we are talking the late great Antonio Inoki, who passed away last year. It's a little, it was almost a year ago, I think, late 2022. And the way I describe Antonio Inoki, I think the best way to describe him, uh, on top of having a first ballot Hall of Fame career in ring, you could make the argument that he is the second greatest promoter in the history of wrestling next to Vince McMahon. And then you add to that, that he was promoting at the same time he was a full-time wrestler and being very successful at both. That's why I was saying he's arguably the most influential wrestler of all time because of the success he had not only in the ring, but in the office booking and running promotions. Do you think that's a a fair thing to say, at least arguably the most popular? I think a very fair thing to say that you'll... Listen, we, we tell you the, basically the highlight of his life is that, that, that probably you really do four episodes about this man's life and still not have covered. 
Mm-hmm. But as we go through, you'll hear that he might be one of the most interesting people and characters in wrestling. And that's saying a lot because there's a lot of really interesting characters in the world of professional wrestling. And he's probably one about one of that too. So it's going to be fun. We, we apologize for him, like Seth said. We know we're not going to cover everything. Some things we just, we, we sat down and pulled out the curtain and we prepared the show and said, okay, these are the highlights that we have to cover because they're the big moments from his life. And some of them are so big, they will probably go into more depth later on. That's another episode by itself. Absolutely. But Antonio Noki, he definitely presented wrestling as being on the level of other combat sports. He wanted wrestlers to be as tough or at least be presented as tough as other boxers. And MMA really wasn't a thing in the 1970s, certainly not by term, but he wanted his fighters to be on the level at least of mainstream fighters. He was billed as a world martial arts champion. I think he was also one of the innovators of the interpromotional show where you would have two different promotions or more having matches on the same show. He even gained a reputation where fans would want him to slap them because they felt the fighting spirit might get slapped into them. That's a fun story Mm -hmm. in its own right. And then another thing that I will put out there for trivial purposes, I think this is correct here. As usual, I'm open to correction. I believe he has beaten by submission both Hulk Hogan and Andre the Giant. And just the number of guys that have just beaten Hogan alone by submission. I mean, the two I can think of offhand are Luger and Sting, and Flair maybe might have done it at one point when they were doing a, when Flair was a babyface. But to beat Andre the Giant by submission, think about that for a minute. (laughs) Screw body slamming Andre the Giant. He made him submit. I'm pretty sure Andre got a nice paycheck out of that one. But I digress. We will start at the beginning here, the early days, so to speak. Obviously, Antonio was not his real name. He was born Kanji Inoki on February 20th, 1943. So as of this recording, if he was still with us, he would have been 80 years old. He did a lot of track and field, a lot of athletics in general, not really wrestling, but basketball. I think he played baseball, discus. So he was a very good all-around athlete, and he actually had moved to Brazil as a young man. This would have been like maybe late teens or maybe early 20s where he was engaged in sports and training and such. And that's where he met another guy that we could easily spend an entire episode on, the legendary Ricky Dozan. And I don't want to, obviously we don't want to get sidetracked in Ricky Dozan, but he was another international superstar, just not really known in the States, but just huge internationally. Well, haven't we discussed actually doing a whole episode on Beauty Way? So he might oh, yeah. get down the road. Exactly, yeah. But it was that athleticism that caught the eye of Ricky Dozan. And so he returned to Japan, Inoki did, and started training under Carl Gotch. And this is where he met another famous wrestler and soon to be promoter, Giant Baba. They both trained under Carl Gotch, and it would have been Luthez, I believe, as well. And Ricky, Ricky Dozen was his mentor. And Baba, I think, probably became a, a bigger star earlier, at least in the career. I think he was the bigger star because he was bigger. I mean, he was Giant Baba. That, that literally was, was his six nickname. foot nine and 300 something pounds, which is huge by American standards, but, but gigantic yeah. Yeah. by 
un- unheard of. By a Japanese, Japanese. And, and the weird thing is, Baba, he's discussed. And Oki goes to Japan because his father's dip, or Brazil because his father's diplomat there. That's where he starts learning a little bit of the martial arts. That's, that's where he gets the track and field. And he has a lot of success. I believe it was as a discus throw. It might have been a, a shot putter. Mm-hmm. But Baba, at that height and that weight, was a great baseball player, which I don't think I didn't tell anybody how big baseball is in Japan. But he was a pitcher. I know Randy Johnson was a fall guy, but he was 6'9". Right. And we can list off, especially you because you're the baseball guy, that is a great pitcher. Not many are above, what, 6'1", six, 6'2"? Six, right, right. There, there, there's a couple taller ones. That, but they have baseball games at the Tokyo Dome and the Egg Dome, right, I think, if I recall correctly? Yeah, there's yeah, you. Yeah. And I remember they played the Bad News Bears game in Tokyo game, mm-hmm. I think. I believe so, yeah. I mean, I don't know. Bill Longsides was in that great movie. I had to check that out this weekend. So Inoki spent the mid-1960s in the United States because it is very common for Japanese wrestlers, once they get their training, their initial training, they will go on an excursion or an international tour. That's something that is still done today in wrestling. These Japanese wrestlers, they'll become young lions in Japan, especially with New Japan. And then they get sent on an excursion where they're gone for a couple of years, and then they come back, and that's when they become major stars. Right. And you got to realize there were territories that were notorious for bringing those guys in. One of them being Calgary, it's too hard. Another one being world class Brits. This possibly also explains why a lot of like Owen and Brett did tours of Japan much earlier than a lot of guys. Why the Von Eric boys went to Japan much earlier than a lot of other. Yeah, there are big stars, but there's a lot of guys, huge names in America, that go their whole career and never, ever get to wrestle in Japan. It is a big deal, I can tell you, they're wrestler to go to Japan and wrestle. Mm-hmm. There are guys who are much bigger than me, name-wise, who are still like, oh my God, you went to Japan? Huh? That's a big deal around here. So anyway, that digress. Now, while Inoki was wrestling in the States, this is just one of those things... It was a different time then, of course. This is the type of thing that I think a lot of the younger people just won't understand because they just don't understand how things were back then. Here are some of the ring names he went by. Now, he did go by his real name, Kanji Inoki, in Memphis, I believe. But he also went by the names, depending on where he was, Mr. Kazimoto, Little Tokyo, Tokyo Tom, and Kamikaze. None of those names sound very flattering. No, but, but you're also talking an era when every Japanese guy in America was a heel. Mm-hmm. You got yeah, Chocho Yamamoto in Memphis. You had Fuji between New York and here in the Carolinas. Duke Yamuka, who was Hawaiian, Japanese. Kabuki, getting ready to come down the pike. They were one of the original foreign heel menace guys. Kind of what Rusev did with the Bulgarian brute he mixed years ago in Bank. I was going to make the analogy that it, it was like in the 1980s and when they just wanted to make the villainous version of something, it was just the Soviet or the Russian version of something America was doing. And, oh, no, now they're bad guys. Absolutely. So when he returned to Japan, Anoki uh, and Baba won the NWA International Tag Team Championship. And this was for the promotion JWA, if I have that right. Now, this is where I think you, you can help me out here as well, because the JWA, that it, it, this is before New Japan and All Japan, because obviously we'll get to New Japan's creation in a moment. But Baba and Inoki were 
probably the biggest stars there. They became the tag team champions. And really, I think they they started each devising their own plan on running the company. Is that is that the fair way to put it? Right. And we're clearly saying JWA stands for Japan Wrestling Association. I think it was Association. I think it was. Mm-hmm. But it was the top. In fact, the only promotion really in Japan at the time. This would have been the same promotion that Ricky Dozan wrestled in in the 50s at right. the time, right? He yeah. started. He started, mm-hmm. yeah. And in America, pro wrestling had been around since, what, about the 1880s? Mm-hmm. Wrestling didn't start in Japan until Ricky Dozan, who was actually Korean, but lived in Japan, and started it. And he had actually been exposed to it by American GIs, I think, in World War II. It might have been the Korean War. But it was... The fifties when it started. So America had like a what seventy uh, years on Japan and even starting programs. Mm-hmm. And he sees Baba and Anoki and he's like, okay, these are the guys I can build my promotion around. I know he's this exotic looking handsome young man who's a big guy, a good athlete, and Baba's already a national Europe and baseball player. Makes a lot of sense to me. Yeah, absolutely. Like I said, Baba and Anoki, they kind of had their own plans to take over the promotion. The the company found out about this. And this is one of those things, I think, long story short, I think they got fired by the promotion shortly after this, or they, but they lost the titles to Terry and Dory Funk Jr., if I recall correctly. It, it, it was basically what put them on the outs in the promotion. And I think you're right. One of them quit. One of them got fired. I believe it was Anoki got fired because he just didn't care anymore. And Baba quit. And we'll get back to Baba later, but he's done with the story for now because another whole episode could be made on this. Baba quit the promotion to form All Japan Pro Wrestling. So Inoki gets canned from JWA. And then in 1972, he founds New Japan Pro Wrestling. And the next 15 years or so, I think, is really what kind of could be considered his peak years, both as an in-ring competitor and as a promoter. And this is also where he officially changed his name to Antonio Inoki. And that was a tribute to another guy who we could have another episode on, Antonio Rocca. Right. Summary of Antonio Rocca. I believe he has the distinction of being the first talent ever promoted by the McMahon family, if I know my history uh, yeah. right there. A lot of older guys I knew when I first started didn't think he was very good. But the reason why was he was legitimately one of the first night wires. He wrestled, wrestled barefoot a lot, did like drop kick, up on the top rope, flying head scissors. When these guys are still these guys are still wearing wool trunks. Talking the day to loot that now. The guy was barefoot and had a drop kick as a finisher, and he actually was depicted in a comic as drop kicking Superman out of a ring. So go figure. <laughs> yes, that's and I forgot about that. Yeah, he was. <laughs> <laughs> wow. But New Japan would go on to become one of the most popular promotions, not only in Japan, but internationally. I think it's safe to say New Japan is probably closer to WWE, at least as far as how it's presented, while Isle Japan was more like the NWA, WCW. But New Japan tended to have the glamour. Which is why the Isle Japan promotion was the territory in Japan for the NWA. Back when the NWA was like the territories. That's probably why. Bob is what, a three-time NWA world champion, I think? Yeah. I mean, Harley dropped until once. It was all for money. I mean, he went over there. They basically told him, we'll give you this money. 
he'll drop the belt to the baba and he'll drop it back to you before you come back to state hardly and nobody will know and they go change with damn much thing can happen but this is where we got some of the innovations i was talking about earlier the interpromotional company versus company match stories based on real life incidents mixed martial arts stuff like that this is really when inoki really started kind of being a pioneer in that stuff like one of the things he did that puts him more americanized more wwf style was he was a little bit more in the baby face shield dynamic it wasn't nearly as pronounced as it was here in the state but it there there was a good guy versus the bad guy, black hat, white hat, the old recruit, local nice team, right? Mm-hmm. Whereas Baba and all his pain, it was more about like a college football game where you had your favorites and you pulled more, but there really wasn't any dynamic. And he wouldn't really get one until later when he had bring in Americans and signed their contract to work for him full time. And that would have been Bruce Brody and then Oakley would bring in Americans, but he didn't have anybody contact. He very much built his ability around local talent in, in Japan, the local Japanese wrestlers. And because the Japanese people are a little bit smaller than Americans and Europeans. So New Japan is one of the first promotions out, uh, you know, outside of Mexico. And GMLL, AAA, which is what we're behind, GMLL, and promoting lighter weight wrestlers. Cruiserweights is what we would call them today. And they did that some in Britain too. That's why you hear these weird things when you study British wrestling, like British Commonwealth middleweight champion or whatever. But he, he really emphasized heavily cruiserweights. And later on, when he kind of winds down as a ring guy to just promoting, he makes it to the point where, and we'll talk about this in more in depth, he makes it to the point where the top cruiserweight guy, junior heavyweight, are on par as star drawing power and in the ring competitive with his top heavyweights, which I don't think I need to tell any of our listeners. Once a once Vince Man or Bischoff when he'd run WCW moved Cruiserweight guy up to the heavyweight division and started making heavyweight, he was considered a heavyweight. Mm-hmm. Whether you're talking he who should not be named or Jericho or Blinko, well we don't ever move up, but Ravis Eddie Guerrero. They were never seen as cruiserweight. Yeah, they're never seen as a as a cruiserweight again. They're now heavyweight, but that didn't happen under Anoki's watch. You were still a junior heavyweight, but you were shown to be a, a tough guy because you could hang with the top heavyweights in New Japan. Sometimes being enemy, you know, early on. And I would imagine, depending on who they are, of course, for size wise, when you take somebody like a Malenko or or an Eddie Guerrero, where if they're in the ring with a fellow junior junior heavyweight. They might be more of the base type, where the other guys will do more of the daredevil stuff, and he'll try to ground. But then, if right. they're up against the heavyweights, they're usually going to be the smaller guys. So they're the ones that'll take to the air and do the flying right, around right. while the big guys catch them. And a good example of that is the first big junior heavyweight that he pushes in the era in the seventy, mm-hmm. and that's Tatsuji, the Dragon Fujinami. Mm-hmm. But we could also do a whole episode on him. Multiple <laughs> episodes on him, yeah. But he's the first junior heavyweight that Inoki pushes as on par with heavyweights, actually wrestling him many times himself. And But that's a name I know American fans know. He's been in the WWE Hall of Fame like Inoki. 
Yeah, that, that, that very famous view with Flair, what, like 93 um, in WCW, 94, some of that? I actually, that that entire event, I think I have down as a possible episode idea because they disputed the title loss, whether Fujinami yeah, actually won the title. Yeah, it was a very controversial finish, yeah. Yeah, but it's also a great example of the style that both Baba and, and Oaks Bush, for what it's worth, if you go back and watch that match, Flair, Fujinami, their chests are red. They are chopping the living crap out of each other. That whole match. Brian Danielson would have been proud of that, I'm sure. Yes. He might be one of the biggest marks for that match ever. <laughs> what they did, that strong style you hear all the time. Anoki and Baba are creating that. In fact, I think Anoki called his strong style and Baba called his Kingsman. They're essentially the same thing. It's just a little snugger, a little more realistic. The, the, the entertainment stuff we can hear in America. And yeah. the Fujinami player match that we're talking about is a great example of what that meant. And that all comes from Anoki and Anoki's desire to present professional wrestling as legit and Baba even more so. But Anoki was so convinced of this and this would work as a promoter in his heyday, this time when he's building up Fujinami as top junior heavyweight. He's building himself up as top heavyweight. One of his favorite things to do would be to bring in legitimate martial artists and combat athletes. Remember, like like that, that much years before MMA and UFC, and have them wrestle him. Of course, it would be in a worked environment, but this is no kayfabe. The fans didn't know. And then he wisely would have them do the job for him. And then he could present, like I said earlier. Look at me, I'm a pro wrestler, and I beat this judo champion. I beat this karate champion. I beat this collegiate wrestler. I beat this sambo champion from Japan, from Russia. And so people are believing, oh, wow, pro wrestling is a real deal. And I'm not saying that it's a bad thing it's worked, and I'm not saying that Anoks couldn't handle himself, because Lord knows he could. He'll tell you not. So he, he was a black belt in judo. But could you imagine American promoter trying to pull that off down there? I, I don't think they'd know how. They, they wouldn't, and it's when he did. And that particular ideology in, in Anoki leads to maybe the most famous thing he did here in America. And what would that be? That would be 1976. What would that be? Right. That would be the famous fight uh, or match with Muhammad Ali. This is arguably... I guess you could call it famous or infamous, depending on uh, how you look at it, what what country you see it in. Because internationally, it was huge. It really I didn't get nearly as popular in the States. But this was supposed to be Inoki versus Muhammad Ali. Now, Bruno Sammartino also wanted to fight Ali in a shoot, but that never happened. For some reason, more money was basically offered to Inoki. Anoki, I guess, was just looked at as the bigger international star. Right. Now, here's the thing where I know the match was originally supposed to be a work, but if I understand it right, Ali refused to lose if it was a work because obviously him being the biggest championship boxer, I think even by then he might have been considered one of the best boxers in history. Well, yeah, in 76, you got to remember Ali's on the downslide. He's already had the belt stripped of him because he repeats fight Vietnam. He's on the comeback trail. 
he's already done rope dope so we're probably beginning to see the early issues later taking life what 30 40 years later but he's not what he was when he was Cassius Clay and then 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 Mop Ali ten years earlier. So I'm wondering he wants a payday, but he's a proud man. Mm-hmm. He's obviously a tough guy. Ali is. But Ali has always been a fan of wrestling. Yeah. And he he's always gotten that it's a word because he stole his old stick on the mic from Freddie Blassie. He missed that. He was a big mark for Gorgeous George. He yeah. understood that he can make more money as a heel, so to speak. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's something Ronda Rousey picked up later, too. Yeah. Yeah. And what I think, all speculation on my part, ladies and gentlemen, I think that he wouldn't have mind doing a work. I don't think Ollie would have cared. I think he's just handlers like, no, 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 you can't do that, champ. We're trying to get you these top matches because you don't have any left in you. If you get down with this, a one done in the boxing world. That's what I think. I don't know what your point is now that I've thrown that out there. What do you want to say? I, I would think that the idea of making it a work might have worked better if Ali won. You know, I, I think it's one of those things like if, if he wins, then he probably would have been cooler with it being a work. But if he's going to lose, then right. he should lose for real and not – because otherwise people say, oh, right. well, yeah, he, he he didn't actually get beat. He just he, he just play fought. Oh, he just laid down for the funny wrestling. But yeah. Right, right. This match, we, we haven't talked about this, but this match, quite frankly, this is one of those topics we can legitimately do an entire hour and a half episode just this one match. Mm-hmm. Well, probably the whole, not the match, but the entire card. The main event was Chuck Wechner, a heavyweight boxer, against Andre the Giant. But anyways... Back to Nokia and Ali, um, it was, I think, on live television in Japan, recorded and played on closed circuit here in the state. And we've talked about closed circuit before, like back in our first episode with the first arcade. We talked about it with our episode about the first WrestleMania. That was the precursor to the review. And in 76, this was a very, very new. To give you an idea of the closed circuit thing, was. Jim Ross, the old JR, has said on many occasions, talking about the podcast a lot, that he actually wanted the money behind this particular match being played on closed circuit. I think it's awesome. And jokes, he lost his shirt on it because of maybe the Oklahoma wrestling fan that wants to see the matches. But <laughs> so it's pretty big. It's pretty big. I just, like you said earlier, I don't think it did as well money wise here in the States as it did in Japan. But one of the more controversial things that I think about the match was the argument of whether it was it a work, was it a shoot? Once it was decided it was going to be a shoot, there were also other rules about Ali take his gloves off and all the other weird things. So Anokia, I think, understood, I can't take him down with all the other rules, too, or something like that. So mm-hmm. Ali, he, he was not, if he stood up and tried to lend Ali this much, he was going to get knocked out. So he does this strange style that would be very boring and was boring to a lot of the fans that saw that think it was a terrible match. But top MMA guy, like you put on, Conor McGregor said this while doing the match. Right. He thought, I'm good of it. It was actually really a strategy. What Anoops basically did was get down in like a crab walking position, like an all force, but with his butt and his back towards the mat and just leg kicks the crap at Ali. Yeah. What, like the first three full rounds? Yeah, that's pretty the match, basically. You can visit and you can visibly see 
Ali's legs starting to welt up. And you can visibly see as the match progresses, it's taking its toll. Ali ain't moving as fast as he used to. And we're talking 76 before MMA. Of course, leg kicks are very common in MMA now. Right. No one know what the heck that was back then. Mm-hmm. And in fact, I've, I've heard, I think you can hear audibly on some recordings, you can hear Ali say, take these damn gloves off me. <laughs> <You're> like, <laughs> and many have said that because he agreed for it to be a shoot, and they know he employed this very unorthodox style that probably killed any chance of Ali having any kind of comeback. This late the state. Because it destroyed his knees and his legs, or he didn't have the spring in the speed yeah. anymore. Yeah, he legitimately got hurt, and that permanently affected. Yes, yes. It, it, it pretty much killed Ali's hopes of ever making a comeback, ever. Mm-hmm. Now, as far as scoring here, the subject of our last episode, Gene LaBelle, he actually scored that match as a tie. I think it was a 71-71. Yes. And, then, and there were people that actually did think that Noki won that fight. But in the end, the scoring was 74-72 for Ali. If I remember right, I believe I actually scored it one time just for yep. this heck of it. And I think I scored it for Anoki too. And yep. of course, I might be biased because I'm a wrestler. Right. But he just, he dominated, in my opinion, he dominated the match. He controlled the action. He controlled the pace. He, yep. he, he landed more strikes. I'd heard that Conor McGregor has gone over that fight with a fine-toothed comb as far as everything. And he said, yeah, Anoki actually had a real shot at winning. And Obviously, I really don't know much about fighting strategies, but making it so your opponent has to come after you, that's not cowardice there. That's that's smart, I think, where you, you're trying to make the enemy come to you rather than to just take it up and nose to nose. You know, there, there's a measure of strategy. And combine that with the fact that five of the fact you're hurting his mobility, so it's even tougher for him to come to you. Right. You, you're taking his legs out, you know? So... Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was not not dumb. So once again, proving the point that we both made earlier, Enoki was no slouch legitimately. He could take care of himself. Right. What dumb fighter? Yeah. Now it was seen by 55 million people in Japan, uh, and, and the first showing, I think a replay did like another 20 million, and that's like that was like half the population of Japan at the, at, at the time, possibly even more right. than half. No. That's like the, the last episode of MASH here in the States. Right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, pretty much. It's like Super Bowl levels. But in the States, mm-hmm. it flopped. There really was not much success. The only place that I think it had made money was it was shown at Shea Stadium. But it was the same night there was the Bruno-Stan Hansen match. I think this would have been the match where Bruno had come back from the broken neck, I want to say. Yes, yeah, so uh, coming back from the angle. Yeah, it was the one that so, caged, if I remember right. Right, right. So it was Bruno and Stan Hansen that brought the gate, and people just saw the fight as far as uh, part of it. But it was it was definitely Bruno and Hansen that the crowd came there to see. Right. So, so we can eliminate that now from our next episode of Unpopular Opinion. Yeah, <laughs> Bruno, Bruno Hansen's old house, not <laughs> not Ali and and, and Oki. Much like as we pointed out earlier on the first episode of Unpopular Opinions. Hogan Andre sold the house at WrestleMania 3, not Steamboat Savage, no matter how big a match it was. Right, right. Now, we mentioned Giant Baba before. This is kind of where he comes back into the story for a little bit because he and Inoki actually did team one more time in 1979 to fight yep. Tiger Jeet Singh and Abdullah the Butcher. And 
again, where this was an inner promotional thing because Baba already had All Japan up and running and had a few years of success under his belt now. So this was supposed to lead towards a New Japan and All Japan supercard, but there was a falling out. Yeah, we know how, how those work out in the pro wrestling world, don't we? Not everybody's friends in wrestling. Yeah, how, how did that work out with the Crockett's and the Locks? With the Crockett Cup. Yeah, he ended that, that for one year. Yeah. So Inoki actually then starts working with the then Worldwide Wrestling Federation, obviously the company now known as WWE, and he actually has a match with Bob Backlund on November 30th, 1979. But Tiger Jeet Singh interfered in that match, and in Japan, at least, the title was declared vacant. Now, that was never officially recognized in the States, if I know my history correctly. I know there were times I think Bob even dropped the title on international shows, but it was never acknowledged in the States. Well, I think it was Christmas Day, 80 or 81. There was a match in the Omni in Atlanta with 81. And he was in 81 because Flair was the world champion of the NWA. Backham was a W, and it was, it was a title versus title match that ended it. I, I want to say a time limit draw, but it might have been. No, it was a time limit draw. So it did happen occasionally, but title switches were even rare. I did want to bring up on one thing, though, which you were talking about a tag team match. For those that don't know, Tiger Jeet Shing was, was, was he the uncle or father of Tiger Ali Singh in the WWE? I can't remember what, what he was his uncle or he was his father. But same style. Crazy Indian dude, carried a sword between his teeth. You and might wear the turban and stuff like that, you know? Yeah, like he hugged the Sikh turban, like he was Sikh, not like he was here. And, of course, I don't think we have to tell anybody here who uh, Abdul Butchery of them what he brought to Right. And for what it's worth, completely off, we could do a whole episode on Abby, and we probably will at some point. Abby was huge in Japan. Mm-hmm. Even though he, he wasn't signed to a contract, that would happen later, like I brought up earlier with Bruce Brody and Dan Hansen as the first American, so first non-Japanese. He went over there all the time and was even more scary in Japan than he was here. But the only place he was more scary than Japan was Puerto Rico. And he was so well-known and beloved, he actually did, like, tons of, like, ads, TV ads, and spokesperson, even at the top heel. He was huge wow. over there. And so, Anoki and Baba, the two biggest stars in Japan, facing two guys like that, which were legitimately the top two heels in Japan at the time, that, that's a license to print money. Definitely. So, yeah. And there were other matches that... Inoki had with Backlund over the WWE title and with the way the WWE's rules are. And I think a lot of promotions have done this since, but I know in the, in the NWA and I believe even to this day in new Japan, a title can change hands on a count out or, or on a DQ with, with WWE, the count out or disqualification did not cause a title to change hands. Uh, short explanation is that was a way they would have heels to get heat is they would win by DQ or win by count out, so to speak. They can say they won, but they didn't win the championship. You know, that, that type of. Interesting side note, this now. That's mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I'll take the blame for turning himself on the Japanese wrestling because it is oh, yeah. about I love 50% my fault. And 50% the late, great Northland Kitney's fault. 
<laughs> we did this, ladies and gentlemen. But in Japan, both all Japan and in Japan, I count on this 20 seconds. You have 20 seconds to make it back to the ring, not 10, like here in America. And so they even try to emphasize by the length of time, you got plenty of time to get back in the ring. And if you can't make it back in the ring, you either really are beat down and can't get back in. So if a heel stalls, they're stalling for 20 whole seconds. So that's going to get you heat. You know what I'm saying? Or you could, you could even have the heel, if he's the champion, then just get counted out or get DQ'd because that way, they, while the hero may still win, the villain keeps the title. You have that, that type of stuff as well. Right. Exactly. It's one of those small differences between what we do over here and what they do over there. Right. But since it was the WWE, then WWF title, that was up for grabs, it was under the American rules. So Inoki was winning by countout and just wouldn't win the title. But back in the States, the title being held up was never actually acknowledged. So if you look in the history books, Backlund has an uninterrupted title reign. But you look at some of the after mags, and obviously if you look at Wikipedia and such, you'll see that those title changes or title being declared vacant actually did happen and sometimes in the 79 and early 80s. By the time the 1980s came around, this is the part uh, I think you can call the peak New Japan popularity. And that's a lot of P's in one phrase there, but... It's uh, quite the alliteration there, so... Yeah, but by the 1980s, New Japan was considered the largest company in the world because obviously this is still before WWE was national. They also had a partnership with the Worldwide Wrestling Federation, complete with their own championship that was called the WWF International Title, which I think roughly yep. could be considered like the IWGP US title. And it's it's usually going to be foreign people that, that hold that title. Yep. Not, and this set up some huge international matches with people like Ricky Choshu, the aforementioned Fujinami, Guys like Hogan, Mass Superstar, Billy Eadie, Andre the Giant, the original Tiger Mask, you know, you name it. I think this is also where a very young Bret Hart did some international uh, wrestling as well in Japan. Right. Yeah. Um, I can know I got on talking about earlier that he got to go to Japan much mm-hmm. younger than a lot of other Westerners because of his dad's eyes. Yeah. I don't think anybody would consider Bret Hart a junior heavyweight. But he was at this no. point in his career. <laughs> Bret Hart, for crying out well, loud. At that point, he was, he was like, what, 250 pounds, maybe? Probably, yeah. yeah. Bulked up a little bit, but become yeah. heavyweight here in the States. So you could say that the peak popularity in New Japan was in 1983 when they did the first IWGP League. Because one thing we left out when talking about the history of New Japan, they had no world champion. There was no New nope. Japan world champion. They usually had a tournament every year for like a big cup or a trophy. They didn't have a title that was defended like the American promotions. Of course, that, that same concept, they, they've now morphed into their annual G1 tournament, which stands for grappling. And this is part of the reason that love Japanese wrestling. And mm-hmm. they didn't have a world champion, you know, we'll give them a tournament and Seth is the marking tournament. Yep. And they even have a tag team one as well, you know, the tag league. So. Yes, they did. Yeah. But the story told was that there were several tournaments around the world to determine national champions, with the final tournament to determine a world champion taking place in the IWGP, 
and the first IWGP champion being crowned. IWGP, for those that aren't familiar with New Japan, is International Wrestling Grand Prix. It's supposed to be the governing body of New Japan, but I, it, it doesn't actually exist. It's like the board of directors that you would hear on during the Nitro days of WCW. It's, it was this fictitious governing body. Since let me let you know a little secret, mm. and all right, let's pursue. Yeah, oh, but anyway. you, you, you don't say. <laughs> anyway, yeah. so in in short, I didn't tell you, okay? yeah, the these tournaments were about as legit as the Intercontinental Title Tournament in Rio de Janeiro in 1979, or Dusty Rhodes beating Buddy Landell for the Georgia National Heavyweight Title, Albuquerque, New Mexico. But I, I agree. So this IWGP tournament final in 1983, came down to Inoki facing a pre-WWE, or at least pre-Hulkamania, Hulk Hogan. And this is one of those things that I had heard about it for years, but I never really dove into it until planning to do this show that we're doing right now. But if you look at that footage... Hogan knocks him out with the Axe Bomber, which at the time was his finisher in Japan. It was basically a clothesline or a lariat. And Inoki, I think, goes entirely out of the ring. And suddenly, everybody starts gathering around Inoki. And if you look closely, Hogan, who was the heel in the match, even Hulk Hogan looks on him and he's got that, oh, crap, look on his face. Like something went wrong. Yep. And he genuinely looks like... Uh, holy crap, he's hurt, uh, but then he kind of goes back to strutting around like he's a bad guy. But even that look of concern that Hogan showed, that wasn't real. This was entirely top to bottom a work to put heat on on Hogan for a rematch the following year. Am I correct in that? Yeah, that's correct. Now, now if I remember right, Hogan was, according to the Soviet tournament, he was the American, the U.S. champion, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, he won the, he won the American version of that championship. And at the time, he would have been roughly in the AWA for a gun. Correct. But that angle got over gangbusters. And I think there were a lot of people, I think, that were disappointed or upset when when they realized that it was a work. Because I don't know if I want to say it it cheapened anything, but it's like people felt, I don't know if you even betrays the the way to put it, but it's like when people found out it was a work, they didn't take it very well. People that thought it was a shoot for the longest time. No, they did not. They did not. But it's also, that whole match, something we bring up all the time. If if you've never seen Hulk Hogan's career on y'all, especially his stuff, his family, you you don't really realize something that Hogan's too big. What do you get songs? Yeah, you, you go b- to some of these matches from Japan because some of them are on the New Japan Network, New Japan World. You see Hogan doing insiguries. He's doing body presses. He's doing, I think, uh, the the double leg takedowns. Suplexes on the floor. Kind of spinning around on his back and doing a takedown reverse that way, like an amateur style takedown. Yeah, it's yeah, pretty amazing. Actual bat wrestling. Mm-hmm. He's doing a stuff on the floor. The guys just throw a bunch of these suplexes and take some suplexes off the floor. Yeah, because I, I remember seeing him do the, the the standing body presses, and I'm like, the guy was not moving like 280, 290 pounds. He was moving like a guy you'd think was like 230 or so. Now, of course, he was young and his knees in back workshop, yes. Yeah. It is what it is, but at the end of the day, you, just, you can go and... 
I know she's probably part of the Legion. I know she brought it out of it, you know? So that's what started the annual, like you said, we, now we know it as the, the G1 Climax. It's gone through a couple name changes since then, but it was a couple years after that. I want to say it was like 87 or 88. That's when they actually started an IWGP heavyweight champion. And Anoki was the inaugural champion for that. But I believe he was getting hurt a lot by this time because he, the time was catching up. He was born in 43. So you're talking a guy in his early to mid 40s here as a world champion. And Japan is very strict when it comes to title defenses. If you cannot make an advertised title defense, you are stripped of the title. You, you could be John Belushi and the Blues Brothers. If everything he said was true, there was an earthquake, a terrible flood, blah, blah, blah. All that stuff could have happened legitimately. You'd still get stripped of the title because that's just how it works. Because the way it's done there is they advertise a title match, so you're going to see a title match. They would declare a title vacant and then crown a new champion. So around the mid-80s, mid to late 80s, I want to say this was, he, he was getting hurt a lot more. He started wrestling less. And this is where we get into what I guess you could be called the twilight of his in-ring career. And Anoki announced his retirement from full-time competition in 1995. He still wrestled, but he was focusing more on the promoting aspects of this. And 95 was when he did the, it was the final countdown tour. I don't know if he used the... Europe song or not, but but this is where another huge feather in his cap, so to speak, another thing that no matter which way you slice it is impressive. And obviously there's people who downplay some things and upplay others, but this was the was a collision in Korea. This was the match with Flair in right. Korea uh, that to this day holds the record for the most number of people at a wrestling show. Now, it's not Bye. a record Bye. in the state. Yeah, that, yeah, yeah, as far as being there live. Now, it's not anything like a paid gate or anything like that, and there's a whole bunch of reasons why why it wasn't. But One thing that we forgot to mention that kind of plays into this, part of Nokia's as, as, his, um, as his wrestling is dying down, he's moving to promoting, and he's also creating the next generation of Japanese stars, people Americans, which you've heard of, like Hiroshi Hase, the great Mijan. Ashimoto, Chono, which he didn't train, but with one of the, thank yeah. God. I, I think Jumbo Saruta's in there somewhere too, I think. Uh, Jumbo was a little before that, I think. Oh, Jumbo okay. was kind of in between food and all them, but after. Okay, I, I, I'm, I'm probably thinking of Hashimoto then, because we're thinking the Three Musketeers, yeah. Right, right, right. So, he actually, by extension, run and selected to stop a council which there's in Japan, who's in the politics. And he's also promoting running New Japan and play back. And that brings up an interesting thing. It's an elephant in the room where an oaks is concerned, as well as the piano boy for talking about his wife, known and rumored that of the Yakuza, which is a Japanese mob, pumps money into a lot of the Japanese promotions. And I don't think they've ever particularly nailed one promotion say like like we got home here in the state but there's this common belief that the yakuza uses these promotions as a front to launder their their dirty money and a note he wound up being accused of that i don't i can't remember if he was ever went to court or not well I, he might have but he lost his seat because 
about Ragnarok. I, I, it sounds sounds about right. There was there was controversy over him possibly laundering money and using money from these other business dealings and other ventures to keep New Japan alive. Maybe not. Maybe to keep alive might be a strong thing, but he was funneling it into wrestling because other ventures weren't doing as well. I may have that backwards as well, but kind of like stealing from Peter to pay Paul kind of deal. Yeah. Yeah, and so so yeah, there 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 was definitely some shady business dealings going on to cover bad business that was being done on the table, and, and of course this this affects him politically, and the scandal eventually causes him to lose his seat on the House of Council. I mean, don't want to talk ill of the dead, but we you can't really talk about it. It's a pretty significant part of his life, right? You can't not talk about it. But the fallout from this, he still fairly active in politics. He's now rubbed shoulders with politicians and an attempt to try to save the bank with the Japanese people. And if you know anything about their culture and honor, this makes a lot of sense. He to now present himself as a, basically a peace ambassador unofficial of the country of nations Japan. It kind of makes sense because he is an international star. And one of the things he tries to do is tries to Alleviate some of the tensions that have existed for years between the nations of Japan and North Korea. If you are one of our listeners from Canada or the United States, I don't think I need to explain to you why North Korea and other Western or allied Westerners are not friends. And this, of course, is the, during the time that the leader of the country was Kim Jong il. Kim Jong un's current leader, but this is his father. Mm-hmm. And he goes over as an ambassador. To set up this idea that it's like, let's call it the World Sports Peace Festival. And they're going to make the, the, the showcase centerpiece of this, this big two night wrestling show. And they're going to, it's going to be a joint promotion between New Japan and WCW, which time was being run by Eric Bischoff. Right. And they take several American wrestlers over there. I think Scott Blash Norton goes over, the Steiners, Ali goes over. Because of the history of Ali and Anoki and, and the history of Ali with wrestling. And the original idea that Anoki had, call back what we just talked about with the first IWGP tournament, is let's get Hogan. Mm-hmm. And I'll face Hogan in the main event on the second night. They'll you know, the, the, the star match. My understanding, according to Bischoff, it was one of those situations. Here's the paycheck. You got a good North Korea. It's a communist country that doesn't like us. Oh, yeah, and you got to do a job for a note. And Hogan, to me, says, I don't work for you, brother. Yeah. yeah. And so the next guy in line was Flair. Mm-hmm. And so Shaw approached Flair. Flair said he was stupid. He, wasn't, he didn't talk to his friends in politics here in the state to find out you probably don't want to go to North Korea. So he agrees to it. And that winds up being the main event in the second night, which I think the second night was the biggest crowd, 190,000, which. For comparison's sake, for those that don't understand how many people 190,000 are, the biggest football stadiums and crowds you'll see in the United States are the University of Tennessee, the University of Michigan, Ohio State University, and Texas A&M University. All four of those stadiums seat somewhere between 103 and 110,000 people. Mm-hmm. And when you watch an Ohio State game or watch a Tennessee home game, you probably said it's a miracle. Wow, that's a lot of people. It's way bigger than any WrestleMania as far as live gate. And it's almost 
half the size of what they drew crowd-wise. Think about that. That's amazing, isn't it? It's like the more you think about it, the more mind-blowing it is, I think. And so what was the total overall within the two days? Like uh, like over four, three or 400,000 people. But anyway, right. he, he wrestles way on that. And put that in, in perspective is this man, you know, Seth, very, very correctly stated, is one of the biggest and most important names in the history of all wrestling in the world. This man main evented the biggest, most attended live crowd show ever in the world in the sport of professional wrestling. And oh, by the way, in said main event, he beat what is arguably an awesome regard and greatest pro wrestler of all time in that in that same match. I don't think I need to say myself. What? And I, I know people will say it's it's fake, it's pretty determined or whatnot, but it, it, it is a huge coup to be able to pull that off. Yes. I'll be honest with you, as as much as, as for the stout state, the, the wrestling story of me would have loved to see another Hogan and Adoki, but at that age for both of them, we've probably gotten the better match by having Flair and Hogan. That's your great. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I agree with that. Yeah, because Flair was still heck, he was coming off a uh, uh, WCW title. Well, yeah. I think that one. Right, because this is just before I think the the start of Monday Nitro. So this is like right at right before the beginning of the Monday Night War. It's right after he comes back to the company, Flair that is, and Hogan comes in and they turn Flair heel again and feud with Hogan. It's Dungeon Day, basically. You know? Yeah, yeah. I would put it about so, right. So that's the area you're looking at. I, wow, are you kidding me? I can't even imagine. That, obviously, I was a small indie star. The biggest crowd I think I ever was in front of, maybe 30,000 people, maybe 25,000. And it was me at an indie show. It was, you know, it was a spot I had for WWE in Georgia, though. That's a far cry from 190,000. You know what I'm saying? Right. Right. It's what, one, one quarter, one fifth the size? Something like that. And I'm blown away going, this is a lot of freaking and yes, I played college football at the University of Georgia. Our stadium, when I was there, seated 93,617. So I played football in front of crowds that were only half that side. And it was one of the biggest stadiums in college football. So, wow. Yeah. <laughs> wow. That's all I can say. I have played at the University of Tennessee. We played them up there. When this little quarterback that had a decent career... You might have heard him. Peyton Manning was quarterback at Tennessee. So, mm-hmm. There was a lot of fans at stands that night. Yeah, I've been I've performed athletically in front of big crowd, and I can't even imagine how big that. Is. I've been I've performed, been blessed to perform some huge crowds. I can't imagine 190,000. Are you kidding me? Wow. Now, granted, this is the Korean crowd, and they're not really responding. You don't know anybody. They don't know. They, 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 they know a note, but only because. He's the guy that looks like him because they're both Asian, and he's been coming around their country talking up the show. But would you like to tell them why, why there were 190,000 people in the stand? <laughs> well, it's because attendance was mandatory. That That's effectively. People were figuratively and quite possibly literally at gunpoint had to attend that show. Oh, no. Flair, Flair and the Snyders have both stated that publicly. No. They're just got the automatic rifles, and it, you know, it's like it was scary to them because they didn't clap and stuff or stand up and didn't ask them. They're having an AK 47 point at their head. So that that's why it's kind of got that asterisk about the uh, biggest crowds of all time because because it was mandatory. It's not the biggest crowd that really wanted to be a heterosexual. <laughs> <Right. laughs> 
But again, this was in the, the twilight of his Zen Ring career. And he did wrestle on and off for a few more years after that. His final regular match was on April 4th, 1998, against Don Fry, probably one of the top 10 greatest mustaches of all time, on top of him being just an all-around badass. And this, I, I believe, was in the Tokyo Dome. It was an all-time box office record in Japan. And this is back when the major promotions in Japan, when all, I think all Japan and New Japan, were each running multiple dome shows a year. Nowadays, there's Wrestle Kingdom, and that's about it. Now, unfortunately, Inoki broke a rib early in the match, so they had to cut the match short. But I think he had a couple of kind of exhibition matches that were rematches of some of these MMA Bye. martial arts matches from earlier. But that really was the end of his Twilight career, and I don't want to end the story on a down note, well, did, but this is, this is a really... He did promote some more, is that? Right, right. Brought a little more... When did he tell Newsman? Oh, it was, I want to say, that's who I was getting at. If it was the mid-2000s, possibly 2010, right. because this is what I was meaning about, I don't want to end on a down end, but I think what happened really, as far as real life, and it happens with a lot of promoters, and people have said this happened to Vince McMahon a few years ago, is he may have just lost touch with what was popular. what Because tastes change, cultures change, and thus what people Body find thing. interesting. Yeah, society changes. And that, that that's what people think killed the AWA in, in the 80s, was Vern Gagne was still promoting like it was the 1960s in the middle of the 1980s. Probably part of why big-time wrestling in Detroit died, because they, he said Eddie Barr had a sheep. Yeah, and, and people have said that Vince McMahon was promoting WWE like like the Attitude Era well into the 2010s, and it just wasn't working anymore. Yeah, he did try, and I think, and I can't remember, you've got the hard numbers. I can't remember if it was right after he told the New Japan on, during the end of, like, before he sold it. He tried another picture called UFO. Not mm-hmm. uh, I think it was Universal. I did Lighting organization, and it was an attempt to compete with UFC and Pride and MMA. But right, it, and, and I think it was a mix of, of real and worked fights, if I recall correctly. I could it be was. wrong. And, and Meltzer talks about it a lot, and I've seen some of their shows. UWFI you're talking about, right? Yeah, yeah. And so it, it, you've got this mix of a worked match with pro wrestling squad next to an uh, MMA match. That's just not going to work. Mm-hmm. Yes, there's crossover in the band, but there are fans that only watch pro wrestling. There are fans that only watch MMA. And it's going to be really obvious what's a work and what's a shoot. And if you like shoot style, you're going to you're going to think, oh, crap, that pro wrestling is boring. And if you don't like the, the MMA, you're going to oh, this is boring. These guys are going it, 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 to It's not going to work. Mm-hmm. I don't think I, I, I can't. Right, right. But at least he was still smart enough to realize and see with the live with UFC, this is the new thing. Let's try. Mm-hmm. Right. And well, it once again is fitting for him with his idea of let's present pro wrestling and with the same legitimacy as boxing, retro Roman wrestling, and judo. But it looks like Inoki sold his stock in New Japan in 2005 to Ukes. And if you're a gamer, that name sounds very familiar. Yes, it is the same Ukes that made video games and actually would 
what was in the middle of their contract with WWE. That's where a lot of the WWE games were at the time. This is like the SmackDown versus Raw game stuff around that time. And then he he did have the IGF and Noki Genomi Federation, but they only had of events there. But that that was probably most notable for them having Brock Lesnar. Brock Lesnar was stripped of the IWGP title, but then would wrestle at these Inoki events still as the IWGP champion. And that's when they did the match, Lesnar versus Kurt Angle, where Kurt Angle won the third belt. Uh, It was a third version of the IWGP title. And then Angle, I think, dropped it to, I want to say, Nakamura, which really, that's a hell of a dream match today. Kurt Russell, Kurt Angle, and Nakamura. I'm not a belt board like you are, Seth, mm-hmm. but I believe that IWGP belt, whichever it is, is one of the most gorgeous belts. Yes, de- definitely. And I can say as a belt mark, yes, it's one of the coolest belts of all time. And But <laughs> that was also just worth mentioning for somebody that just wants to scour the net for the Kurt Angle versus you know, Shinsuke Nakamura. That was a very different Nakamura. It's not the Nakamura you see in WWE now. This is not Nakamura, Nakamura now. Right. He wore very plain tights, and he just hadn't developed into the personality he, he is today. Because Nakamura is one of my favorite right now. He was in support of the second incarnation of the Three Musketeers. Yeah, it was Tanahashi, Shibata, Nakamura, and Shibata. Yeah, because... I was thinking it might be the great healer, but he kind of had his own yeah. thing going on. Yeah, because I've, I've been hearing Tanahashi referred to in the New Japan Japanese broadcasts as uh, the, uh, the last Musketeer, because... Yeah, but Shibata and Nakamura are gone from the company, so. Right, of course, the original three musketeers we had earlier in the 80s was Muda, Hashimoto, and, uh, and Hase. Uh, yeah, or, or, or was it Chono? And an interesting side uh, note on Hase is he wound up, he wound up becoming a member of the House Counselors himself. <laughs> and and I think another one of those guys that held the light heavyweight as well as heavyweight titles, I think, uh, I, I want to say. I think you're right. Not every great... Japanese store worked under a nosy, but about what two thirds of this one way or another. You can definitely call him the Hulk Hogan of Japan. I've heard him referred to as both the Hulk Hogan and the Vince McMahon of Japan because you could kind of say he was like Hogan and Vince rolled into one as far as his career in Japan. But I would say, without a doubt, hands down, internationally, he is a much bigger star than Hogan. I might argue. Until Nakamura had his successful run here in the States, and many fans even with AJ having a very successful career on both sides of the ocean stand, and mm-hmm. Road, other guys that were stars both in Japan and here, the Road Warriors, Andre, Anoki might be the biggest international star in the history of wrestling. I yeah. think that's, that's fair yeah, to say. It, it, it is definitely arguable, and he's definitely on that. Mount Rushmore of all-time international yeah, I mean, he's stars. He's up there with probably, probably like Andre and maybe Ted, like mm-hmm. really say that he was successful in Japan and making money draw there and he wasn't here. He just did yeah. wrestling. Right, right, definitely. So that's going to uh, wind us down here for, I know we've been going for about an hour, maybe an hour and a half here. That We've scratched the surface of what, the, on the details of his career. So we're definitely going to talk Anoki again in the future. Oh, yeah, there's so much more besides just wrestling. Like we said, out of this one, just the hot ones, we're probably going to have what, four or five episodes standalone by the one event, another one match. 
I, I want to do a show just on the formation of New Japan because I think we can easily I, do a show on that, if not just the, the, the time of he and Baba in the JWF and uh, or JWA, whatever it was. Um, yeah, I'd close Korea, Desert and Sound Show, mm-hmm. the Ali, the Ali and Oki Court, Desert and Sound Show. And, and if you notice, we kind of ended things in the mid 2000s. They just died last year. Right. He went on for another 15 years, still being an ambassador, heavily involved, not the elected official, but in Japanese politics. Converted mm-hmm. to Islam and changed his name again. So mm-hmm. <laughs> we just scratched the surface. Right, absolutely. So that's going to bring us to the end of this episode. We we got a lot of stuff lined up, but like I said, it's just with with real life complications, things just can get hard to get our schedules to coincide. And I don't want to half ass an episode. Uh, we I, I want us both to be able to do an episode, unless it's something that. One of us may know that the other one doesn't, but I, I think the show is much better with both of us. This show would be pretty boring if I was just talking to myself, but that's... <laughs> well, trying to find a silver lining in every cloud. Yeah. I am going to be laid up here pretty soon, having uh, convalescing from whatever they're going to do to my back. Maybe we can get some in the can and just you can release them over <laughs> Right. Yeah, definitely. So... If this is your first time listening to us, definitely welcome. We are Classic Wrestling Memories. You can find us at ClassicWrestlingMemories.com. That's also the name of the Facebook page. We are still getting uh, followers on that page. I think we're at about 3,500 people now that, that pay attention to our page. And you can find us wherever you find your podcasts. You can find us on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, yeah, you name it, Spotify. Spotify. Just, just do a search for Classic Wrestling Memories, and you can also do a search for Geekville Radio if you want to hear us talk some non-wrestling content because we're all part of the same family there. And Train, if people want to talk to you about wrestling or rock and roll or horror movies or whatever they wish to talk to you about, where can they find you? You can always reach me at CrazyTrain underscore JB on Twitter at, well, sorry, not Twitter anymore. I guess it's X now. X. Yeah. <laughs> on X. Thanks, Elon. Uh, I don't pay the money for a blue check. So if you do a search, uh, if you see a profile picture of a, 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 a wrestler with a teddy bear, it's it me. And that's pretty much my handle across all social media platforms. Um, for what it's worth, I also want to thank all the people that have, that have reached out on Facebook and, and, and given us a follow and give us a listen. I'm, I'm very humbled by the response we've gotten over the last several months. People joining. People sat in lieu of us being able to support new content that's been reposting older episodes and they're getting tons of listen because of that. We thank you. Mm-hmm. That's that's like, and, and but sometimes that answers but usually I answer with y'all sending things through Messenger on Facebook. So thank you for all the kind words you received there as well. It is very appreciated and we do listen. And I had a long discussion with one of our newer followers. I'm sorry, I'm drawing a blank on your name right now, sir. But we had a long, heated discussion about you should have been world champion and never got a world title. So, yes, we do respond back. Yeah, it's just a lot of times, though, outside of my downtime when I'm not at work, I really don't have much time for social media. So that's why it's usually train and, and not me. But I, I'll, I'll still pop in from time to time and look at stuff. Um, I just don't brainstorm work. I'm not going to lie to you. I, I might go to a little voice room or step out of my car and open up my cell phone and 
Oh, oh, there's a new message. <laughs> so we are going to shut down the power here in the Classic Wrestling Memory Studios. We will be back sooner rather than later. I believe our next topic is going to be the WWE Hall of Fame for this year, 2023. Um, we'll probably be doing another, depending on schedules. I know we're, we're set to do another Unpopular Opinions episode because that's one of our most popular episodes. And I think we're also going to do a 101. We haven't done a wrestling 101 thing in a couple of years, but we we got a couple lined up for that. So, John tried to tag team. We've also talked about probably retrospectives with some other greats we've lost recently, namely Superstar Billy Graham and a few others. And we've been talking about doing one just devoted to Texas territories, like for like five years we're now. Six we're, years now. <laughs> yeah, things keep happening. So, sorry, Texas. We'll get to you sooner or later. And so. All right, so this has been Classic Wrestling Memories. We'll talk to you folks again next time. Classic Wrestling Memories is part of the Wrestling Brethren podcast family and can be found on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, and at ClassicWrestlingMemories.com. The views expressed by the hosts and or guests are purely their own and do not reflect the opinions of ClassicWrestlingMemories.com, BehindTheSquaredCircle.com, the Wrestling Brethren Network, or any affiliates. Some media used by Classic Wrestling Memories may be the copyright of its respective owners, all rights reserved. Just before we keep going, I want, before we keep going, Sam, I want to share something with them. Well, it's completely not about a note, but just full transparency, folks. We actually had to move off the boat a little bit. I had to get gaps as I mentioned earlier. I'm driving back to South Carolina. Seth had to fix that bumper spiders. Well, now that I'm back on the road recording, if you listen to our sister podcast, podcast from parts the radio, this trip. On our first soundstrip about the future we have, at the end of that episode, we talked about where in real life Georgia did have fictional town. Mm-hmm. I'm driving through the part of that Georgia right now. <laughs> anyway, I thought that yeah. was kind of funny. You know? Yeah, yeah, definitely. But th- but this was a off the coast. Yeah, you, you, you dropped you dropped ahead. out you dropped out for a second there, Reddit. So I just picked that back up. Okay. And-